Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to UPINB. <laughs> Today we have a very special guest with us, and we would love to welcome Angela Brooks, who is a Chicago resident and has begun her term as president of the American Planning Association, which is a 41,000 member organization that is committed to advancing better and more just communities through good planning. Brooks is the first Black female to be elected president of the APA, and she will serve two years as president leading the 16-member APA board of directors in governing the association, setting strategic goals, and elevating both the importance of planning across the U.S. Um, this is a volunteer position, and she is doing amazing work, and we're just so excited to have her here. So there is a big, long list of all of her achievements, and I'm just going to go through some of them because we're just so proud to have her on the podcast. So Brooks currently is director of the Illinois Office of the Corporation for Supportive Housing and has dedicated her career to improving housing options and ensuring equitable access to safe and affordable housing. She was appointed by Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot to serve on the city's zoning board of appeals as well. And additionally, Brooks is also co-chairing a national partnership between APA and the National League of Cities called the Housing Supply Accelerator to improve how communities meet the housing needs of residents, which is so important in this day and age. Prior to her role at the Corporation for Supportive Housing, she also served as development manager for the Chicago Housing Authority. She is a native of Seattle and was a member of the City of Seattle Planning Commission. Brooks has also been an active volunteer leader within APA since she began her planning studies. She has chaired APA's Housing and Community Development Division, served as director on the board, vice president of programs for planning in the Black Community Division, and she co-chaired the member-led update to APA's official housing policy guide. Finally, she is a fellow of the American Institute of Certified Planners, the profession's highest honor bestowed upon a planner. She is a strong champion of HBCUs, having earned her bachelor's degree from Jackson State University. She also earned her master's degree from the University of New Orleans, and she is a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, the first intercollegiate, intercollegiate excuse me, historically African-American sorority, and the Lynx Incorporated. When she's not focusing on housing, Brooks can be found enjoying her road bike, participating in triathlons, or rooting the Jackson State Tigers to victory. So here is an amazing summary of Angela Brooks, which I feel just does not do her enough justice. But welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. And if you wanted to add anything that I may have missed, please feel free to do so. But just welcome and thank you again so much. No, thank you guys for having me. Huge fan of what you guys are doing with this podcast. And no, I don't have anything else to add. That was a lot. I'm like, what is that she's describing? <laughs> um, so I think we would like to just jump in. And we always like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast how they came to find urban planning, as it kind of seems like no one's path is quite the same. So we'd love to know a little bit about how you came to find planning, both as a passion and or as a career. Yeah, you know, um, I'm probably a little bit more intentional than a lot of people I meet having found urban planning um, in that when I was first going to Jackson State, I mean, as at, at, I'm of the age where you for, if you were Black and articulate and you could speak, you were probably told you're going to be a minister or a lawyer. So I think I kind of went into it thinking I was going to be a lawyer, but 
one of the things that um, my mom used to tell me when I was a kid is make sure I did something, I could get a job in case I didn't make it into graduate school. So when I was flipping through the book, I was like, okay, well, this urban studies program seems interesting. My parents grew up making me volunteer. That sounds terrible. I grew up willingly volunteering my time with my parents. And, you know, so a lot of this description of the urban studies is a focus on community development housing look like the things I had been doing. So I was like, this sounds cool. And I still at that point probably thought I was going to head toward law school. But a lot of the urban studies graduates from Jackson State obviously went on to get planning degrees. I didn't know that was a thing. I had never heard of it. And um, I've always been fascinated with cities. So at Jackson State, you had to take the GRE to graduate. And I'm competitive. I was not taking both the GRE and the LSAT. So that really made my decision real, real, real simple. And I started looking at um, urban and regional planning programs. And originally, I thought I would probably do something more in the historic preservation space, which is how I chose University of New Orleans. Um, and I was 21 going to grad school, New Orleans, duh. So that's kind of how, I mean, you know, people pick schools for way better reasons than that, but that was kind of how I ended up going in that direction. That is amazing. And, you know, we have already, I kind of touched upon this, but you were recently appointed by Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot to serve on the City Zoning Board of Appeals. So can you kind of share with us some key challenges that cities like Chicago are facing in terms of zoning and housing and how you kind of hope they can be addressed as I feel like from state to state, things can vary so drastically, but yet we do have very you know, deep-rooted history in the way that zoning has impacted all of these different places. So I think our listeners and me and Sam are very curious to, to know what some of your insights have been. Yeah, I'm a new commissioner, a new commissioner on the zoning board. And so one of the things I will say is you're right from state to state, but in states like Illinois, where there's like not a state mandated plan, it's city by city. So it can be drastically different in every city. And as in my previous hat as a developer and somebody who did a lot of permitting for cell towers, all across the state of Indiana and Illinois, it was pretty frustrating because it's very, very different. I think a lot of the work that we're doing at APA around zoning reform really looks at how first zoning, the history of zoning is not great. It was literally created as a segregationist tool to keep black and brown people from certain parts of our community. And so when you think about it from that perspective, there are some things that zoning does do that makes sense, but there are some things it does that probably are a barrier or a hindrance to where we are now in a housing crisis and as a barrier to increasing more housing. So a lot of the work we're doing, even within the housing supply accelerator, will be looking at what kinds of zoning reforms do we need to be looking at? Obviously, one, the biggest one you see a lot of in a lot of papers is the elimination of single family zones. You see a lot around um, parking lot, reducing parking lot, parking lot minimums. And, you know, so I think those are some of the obvious ones. But one of the biggest things I always stress to people is you have to look at what makes sense in your communities. There's not like a bucket full, but there are some theoretical things we know we should be doing. You know, I sat on a 15 hour zoning board hearing last Friday. And, you know, I think if ever I, I can't actually think of anything you could be building next to me that I would sit at a meeting that long. Like literally, you could be building a garbage dump next to me and I'm still not sitting there for 15 hours. I will just buy an air freshener. I mean, that is exactly what you would do to not get a citizen to participate. And, you know, the hearing, the whole intent is to give citizens feedback, but it's not working. And I think a lot of our processes and planning are a little bit archaic and don't reflect the way we live now. And there are better ways to engage community. And we have to start looking at that because not only as zoning a tool of barrier to certain types of land uses, 
some of these meetings are a barrier to people participating in certainly length of meetings is it how you do meetings there's a lot of arguments on whether or not in-person versus virtual i think hybrid might be somewhere we need to land because certainly it's real well it's not easy nothing's easy about 15 hours but it's certainly more reasonable for a long meeting if i can pop on and off of a zoom versus come to your city hall and sit there and then people work different hours of the day. So, you know, you can say, oh, an evening meet meeting is better. But some of our residents work three to 11. So, you know, there's no there's no easy answer to this. But I know there's ways we can engage community in ways and still get input and include everybody. And I think that's where we re really need to go as a profession. Yeah, Sam and I have talked about this quite often, just in terms of the way in which we do try to get communities to participate in the work that planners are doing. And it's been emphasized in our program, especially just how important it is to kind of reimagine the way in which we're bringing people into this space and allowing for public comment or feedback, because I do feel like historically it's been very superficial. A lot of it is more so informative than it really is to try to collaborate with the community. And so I do think that that work is especially important and to hear about a 15 hour meeting, I think even somebody, if they didn't have a job and they, you know, didn't have anything else to do, I would not be sitting in that meeting if, you know, that was like my option. Um, so I totally echo just the importance of kind of reimagining the way in which we start fostering participation and collaboration with communities. I think it's extremely important, especially when these things do impact people in such significant ways, especially housing, or like you said, if there was a proposal to put, you know, an industrial warehouse next to housing and people don't come to that meeting and don't know, and then this ends up happening, it can be really detrimental. And so I do think that's extremely important. Yeah, I will echo that. And I was, I was just going to say, I, you know, have been looking at some of this like zoning guides that APA has been putting out lately. And I, I was looking through the equity and zoning policy guide. And I would just say for anyone interested or even just like looking for an intro, like it's a really great policy yeah. introduction. And I think is getting at what you were saying about like, you know, we need to be looking at all of these different ways that we can be reforming zoning to, you know, obviously it has, it, I think it can have good, like, I don't know, it started in a very bad place, but I think that there is some, there are ways that we can get try, that we can start to try to change that. Yeah. And you did, I, I forgot to do my plug. So thank you for mentioning that guide, because I, I do think that's one of the things I'm most excited about as having worked on a housing policy guide. Some of our policy guides are uh, a bit hard to read and use in the yeah. plot. So the zoning for equity guide, they did a really good job of making it user-friendly. Like it is truly a tool that a citizen could use, mm -hmm. a jurisdiction could use, elected official could use, and it really is a user-friendly, plain language. I stress that in planners. Mm -hmm. I don't need planner talk. I need just plain language. Yeah. Um, yep. Every person can pick it up and read it. So I'm super excited about the rollout. They're, the committee on that, they did a really good job of, um, taking the planning for equity guide that preceded it and taking it to a real level that we can use. So certainly, Samantha, thank you for plugging that because I do think that's a really good resource for people that they can really start having conversations. But more importantly, a lot of a lot of the work we do as planners 
I mean, we're theoretists, you know, we're the theorists. We don't actually implement it. So it's a tool we can give to the elected officials to back up some of the stuff we're saying. Yeah. And it's validated. So, you know, it really does give people the validation of the organization, which is one of the benefits of having professional organizations to give tools to practitioners to really have that like, hey, I didn't come up with this. I didn't pull it out of the hat. This like <laughs> is a thing. It's based on real data. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, moving into the next question, you have dedicated your career to improving housing options and ensuring equitable access to safe and affordable housing. Um, as co-chair of the Housing Supply Accelerator, you are working to improve how communities can meet the housing needs of residents. Can you talk about some of the specific strategies or initiatives um, that this partnership is implementing to achieve this goal? And I know that you have alluded to kind of looking at how zoning can change to accommodate more housing and not have, you know, six area, whole areas that literally cannot build more than single family homes. So I, I'm sure that that is... Um, that's one of the strategies that y'all are looking to towards. Yeah, I mean, I am super excited about the Housing Supply Accelerator. We actually have a convening here in Chicago this week. So I've been spending my weekend kind of looking at stuff. So, yeah. you know, the thing that's most excited is really bringing kind of typical or really atypical partners together. And that includes uh, planners, elected officials, realtors, financers, and builders. And so the convenings that we're holding are going to focus around um a few things. There's a steering committee of 20 experts on 10 from the NLC side, 10 from APA. They're a reflection of all political parties. I did. I tried to do a really good job of our 10 of pulling people from all regions, mm-hmm. some urban, some rural. So did a lot of, spent way more time than I probably should have trying to balance that out. Um, but we really want to have a, a wide breadth of people in the room. So when we come out with it, document at the end, a lot of the tough conversations were had. So it's a really usable document to talk about strategies to really increase housing supply. So the convenings are going to go around three things. It'll be zoning and regulatory reform, construction and development, and finance. And so uh, we'll have experts. So here in Chicago this week, we will be talking about um, the construction and the development side. So we'll have um, industry experts here talking and the steering committee will hear. There'll be panels and we're going to do some site visits and look at some of the developments that are going up in the Chicago area. And so at the end, hopefully in November, we'll be doing a presentation of recommendations that jurisdictions across the country really can implement to increase housing supply. Because what we do know is we are underproducing. Um, We partnered with um, Up for Growth last year and um, did a production, what is it? Up for Growth did a housing production I don't know, report, but it talked about how we're underproduced in every state and every jurisdiction in all tiers. And so we know what happens, you know, I I could afford market rate, but if I don't have a unit, I can go to affordable, but they don't have that luxury. So if we're underproduced on the top tier, it's going to impact all the others. So certainly, you know, a cough at the market rate is the flu at the lower income communities in units. So we've got to start thinking about how do we increase that supply? And it's not necessarily going to be comfortable conversations. But one of the things I'm finding in conversations about housing supply specifically is that is nonpartisan. Now, when you start talking about funding it, that's where it starts getting a little more dicey. But I think we can all agree that there's no part of this country that's not dealing with the need of more affordable housing. Yeah, that's I'm really glad you brought this up because Sam and I have talked about this a lot and we will be actually um, introducing an episode soon about just the concept of 
filtering and the need for not just affordable housing, but also market rate housing. Because again, as you had mentioned, market rate is just as important as affordable. And while yes, we have a significant affordability crisis, you begin to alleviate those challenges when you are providing housing at all income levels. So I really appreciate the strategy to address challenges that are impacting every single tier of housing. And especially too, when, like you said, it, we're underproduced on every front in terms of housing, it's been a significant challenge, especially here in the state of California. I think our, um, we have something called RENA and Sam and I have talked about this, the Regional Housing Needs Assessment. And it happens in every, it's an eight year cycle. I believe it's a six year or an eight year cycle. And I think we have not reached our RENA allocation since 1970. Oh, wow. I think since the 1970s. So we've been severely underproducing housing since then. It's And now we have this backlog. And so, again, as you were mentioning, it's just this, you know, kind of wicked problem that continues to permeate and as we continue underproducing it just gets worse and worse and so i think strategies like this and the work that apa is doing and the work that you know that these kinds of commissions or meetings are going to help solve really could be providing opportunity to find and understand how are we going to finance these things because again like you said that becomes one of the most you know, <laughs> chaotic problems when trying to get people to come to consensus. So I really appreciate, you know, just your work on that front. And um, I wanted to kind of jump into a little bit more of a personal question. Um, so in addition to your work in urban planning, you are an avid road biker and you also participate in triathlons. And so Sam and I are curious how you kind of balance your professional and personal passions and do you find that they kind of inform or influence each other in any way, specifically because biking and running uh, are, you know, a part of the urban form and they take place typically outdoors? And so kind of curious if you ever see those kind of intersections when you're when you're doing your activities. Yeah, you know, ironically, you guys are probably a lot smarter than I was at your age because I definitely <laughs> do not get the correlation between my love of cycling and like what that mean, means in the built environment. Like it wasn't until the year and a half I didn't have a car and I was like literally using my bike, not just for, you know, fun long distance rides or training, but to like go to the grocery store that I started thinking about, um, you know, the lens that I had as a more pedestrian citizen of Chicago than you know, I always rode the train to work, but I drove everywhere else. So when I started having to ride my bike and all that, those things, then I started thinking about it differently. I literally live across the street from Washington Park on the south side of Chicago, which is a beautiful Olmstead Park. I mean, you know, you've got the same person who did Central Park and I live across and I had never been in that park until COVID, which is really, really embarrassing. I shouldn't admit that. Um, but other than drive through it, I had never like walked through that park. And so one of the things that as um, one of the things I did not mention in my bio, I'm on the board of Ride Illinois, which is a statewide bike advocacy organization. And there's a lot of planners actually on that board. And a lot of the work that we do is looking at not just bike lanes, but real pedestrian advocacy and how do we increase pedestrian access throughout the state. And it's vastly different in a city and rural areas. Sadly, one of our board members was killed in a rural area cycling last year and a car swept from behind them, you know, total freak accident, but it is a very humble reminder 
that cycling safety is a huge priority. And as somebody who drives a lot and rides a bike, I think about that tremendously. And, you know, I think there are um, areas of the country, probably California, certainly Washington, that are very, very, very strong bike advocacy. Um, but we, when we're really advocating around bike advocacy and bike lanes and things, we also have to think about our citizens who have mobility challenges. So as we're creating these spaces for them, we also have to make sure we're not decreasing access to public spaces for the mobility challenge. Like there's a huge conversation in Seattle right now about whether or not they close like Washington Boulevard, which is unlike Chicago in a lot of places, you know, Chicago protects the lakes. It's pretty public the whole way throughout the city, but in Seattle, it's not. So if you're not walking, you can drive like Lake Washington Boulevard. So you're thinking about cutting, you know, cutting down access to cars. Well, my dad can't walk. And so, you know, that's a thing that he does. He'll drive the lake. And so, you know, I think we have to think about a combination of both, but I don't want us to ever get to a point where, where there's like a fast definition of what works. And we have to think about all ages and abilities to access public spaces and making something more pedestrian friendly doesn't have to always mean it's completely no cars either. There's happy medium. And I don't know what it is. If somebody does, they'll probably have permanent job placement forever. <laughs> um, and to the other part of your question, I am not doing a terribly good job of balancing work and like all of these other activities. I haven't run in forever. My bike, I rate, I did ride it on the trainer yesterday because it was raining, which is going to be the first time I took my bike outside in like a year and a half. So I'm still trying to figure that out. I did sign up for a swimming race this year. So I haven't been in the pool since October. So hopefully that'll make me you know, when you pay money for something, it tends, at least for yeah. me, it makes me inclined mm -hmm. to go, I'm not gonna waste my money. So I'm, I mean, I might be last, I, but I'm going to swim a little bit. I don't want to be last. So <laughs> my whole goal in life is not to be last. And I tell people it's often, particularly at swimming events, there might be, there was one event in Evanston, Illinois, which is just North of Chicago. I showed up and I mean, the water was freezing and I'm a fair weather everything. So I was like, I'm not doing this. I was the only black person there and there were some young black kids volunteering I was like I can't not do this because <laughs> I wanted them I mean the water was like 54 degrees whatever they'll cancel a swim it was one degree more and I mean I was pissed and I was freezing but I finished it for that reason because I was like I can't quit when it's just me out here and they look at me like yay somebody looks like us I was like no this is really stupid don't do this <laughs> Oh, that's so, that's so funny. Well, I'm glad that you did it and that you pushed through the 54 or 55 degree, you know, cold pool. Cause I oh, don't this open water. This was Lake Michigan. That was even oh more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've, you've just kind of brought up some really great points in kind of discussing the way that we as planners look at the built environment, especially when it comes to kind of, I don't want to say revitalizing, but reorganizing the way in which we are planning for spaces that can accommodate different types of mobility. And you had brought up a very interesting point that while we do want to plan to accommodate other mobility options, it can't come at the expense of what we, you know, are already, what we already have. And I think that's really important because sometimes there's there can be this emphasis of we need to completely revert to this like new form and that comes at the abandonment of 
actually really good structure or, you know, a really good built environment that we already have. And so I think it's kind of those complexities of figuring out how are we going to accommodate every single group? And that can be really challenging, but I think that work is so important. And I just really appreciate that that's something you highlighted. Yeah, I think now that I am dealing with an aging parent, I am a little bit more sensitive to it because I certainly didn't think about it. The closing speaker, Rebecca Tasik, for APA this year is in a wheelchair. And so the whole book is about that. Her book is a shout out for her book. It really is funny, but it makes you really rethink how you think about the built environment for someone who's accessing it on a, from, you know, from a wheelchair perspective, which I really appreciated. But, you know, I think it's kind of similar to when we start talking about parking minimums. Yeah. You know, TOD is awesome, but there are some communities like mine where even if I lived next to the train, I'm probably going to have a car because I'm not riding public transportation too late from a safety perspective. Mm-hmm. And so we really have to take in consideration, like theoretically, yes, that is awesome. We probably don't need parking, but there are certain areas, particularly in Chicago, that do have transit access where a lot of our residents are still going to have cars, but market will drive it. So yes, I shouldn't require a one-for-one parking. Right. But I can assure you a developer has run the numbers, as you know, Natalie, the developer is going to propose what they're going to make their money on. So you yeah. have, you do not need to worry about policing that. Yeah, You're going to figure out what that, what makes sense for that development. So we don't really have to spin our wheels about that. They're going to propose what the performer is going to support. So Sam and I actually just had on our final capstone project, um, we are in a TOC community, but it's tier one. So it's kind of lower transit access. And um, when we, there is still, because in the state of California, we have a, a bill that was passed that does not allow for parking minimums anymore. And so you don't have to put parking if you if you don't well, want with certain stipulations. Yeah, there are, there are of course, stipulations Always. in the bill. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for our project, we advocated to put less parking on the site, you know, and I, but when I was looking at the pro forma, you still had to put parking because in the pro forma, this is a revenue generation. And so it is something that's a huge factor. And so when you are looking at it from a developer's perspective, that is extremely important, you know, when you are considering your financial feasibility and the viability of a project, like there are so many factors to consider. And so it does it does bring up a, a very interesting point when people are saying like, no, just like don't put any parking on the site and just leave it as is. But I do understand that from a developer's perspective, that's very different. And that's where kind of planning and housing development kind of clash at times. Um, but yeah, just a very interesting point that you brought up. Yeah. And, you know, a developer has a market study, so they know who their tenants are going to be in a rental situation. So they have a gauge on whether or not they need parking or, you know, like they know they need a bike room. They know who they're marketing to. So trust and believe it's going to be designed to fit that. (laughs) Yeah. It's really interesting because Natalie and I were just talking about graduation. We graduate in May and the like FAQ on the commencement website was like parking will fill up by 7 a.m. And I was like, and our commencement okay. is at 12 o'clock. Yeah, it's at like noon. I'm like, okay, so not going to drive. And yeah. then, but I have my grandma's coming. She's 90 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how are we going to get her to Shrine yeah. Auditorium? Like, okay, yeah. we have to think like, are we taking the train? Are we Ubering? Like there's so many considerations. And it's like, when you do have someone who, you know, is not like as physically able as like, 
us as, you know, 20 somethings or just even someone like my parents who, you know, they could walk from the parking structure to there. They could walk from the train. It does like add this like level of, I don't know, like it's just a little bit more complicated and you do have to think about it a little bit more. And so I've definitely felt kind of that, okay, like how are we going to make that like logistically, what what's the plan? And so I do think it's really important to just always consider that you know as because I work in transportation obviously I'm thinking about these issues a lot and I'm like oh a half mile walk that's nothing like people can walk from Union Station to little Tokyo no problem half mile but then it's like no that's my experience yeah but for you know little Tokyo is like historically like an aging population like that's not necessarily their experience so it is really important that we keep having these conversations about like how do we make these communities work best for the people that are living in them and that are there already absolutely um okay so I think it's we should shift into APA a little bit because you know we are just so excited that we are talking about kind of how people can best use APA resources um but I think First off, we would love to know, um, obviously, you've been involved with APA for a little bit in a lot of different capacities but, um, as volunteers and and um, in the Housing and Community Development Division, you were chair. So what ma- motivated you to get involved with APA? And did you ever think that you would take on the role of being APA president? <laughs> Absolutely not to the last part of your question. Like, not, a, not I mean, not even when, like, election season is upon us nominations are open so mm-hmm. it was two years ago and I was like I mean I'm putting in but whatever I still have two years left on my current board seat because I'm not going to win this so like it <laughs> wasn't even I mean I submitted so obviously I wanted it but I was mm-hmm. like whatever I'm just putting it in so um I think what got me started when I was in graduate school like um you all that's when I first went to my first APA conference and at University of New Orleans, Steve Villavasa, who's an adjunct professor there, was super active in APA. So he kind of really, he he made us drink the Kool-Aid. And so that's kind of how I first got involved. And um, I started out um, at, with being really involved in planning the Black Community Division. I was the program vice chair of programs, which gave me some opportunities to develop content for the conference, um, which was kind of awesome. And then when I moved to Seattle, um, I had a little lapse of being really involved in APA, so I shouldn't make it sound like for the last 30 years I've been super APA. I had a, a little gap where I wasn't very engaged, but I was a member. And so um, I had a consultant from AHBL firm in Seattle. Mike Catterman was the president of the Washington chapter. So the worst thing you can ever do is let somebody in leadership know like you have any skill set because they will suck you and pull you in. They'll pull you right in. And so Michael was like, you should be the newsletter editor for the state. Said, what is that? So I, I I signed up not really knowing what I was getting into. And as you guys know, trying to pull content for your podcast, it can be a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if a newsletter editor, if somebody doesn't submit something, the newsletter still has to go out every month. So suddenly you're writing it or you're begging. Yeah. So, But it gave me the opportunity to really meet people throughout the state of Washington um, because I hadn't gone to school there and I was very Seattle focused. So that really helped um, develop some of my writing skills, but also um, from a network networking perspective. And so when I moved to Chicago, I was not as active in APA. I, I went to my first Illinois chapter conference last year. And it was sad to admit. Um, but anyway, when I first got back here, that's when I was like, oh, let me get in the housing and community development division. 
And at one point they needed a vice chair. So when I submitted my packet for that, I was selected. Uh, Mitzi Barker, who is in Alaska, never met her. She was on the APA board, AICP commission board nominating committee. And she contacted me to run. And she really just thought it would be important to have a Hauser on the national level um, because I certainly had not considered being on the board. Like that wasn't on my to-do list at all. Um, and I ran and I won, um, which was odd because I was like, nobody knows who I am, but I won. And so I served on the board. And I tell this story because it is just a reminder that you don't win everything. Um, so when I was that was the end of my term. I submitted in the nominations packet again to run for the same seat on the board. And I wasn't even slated. And I was like, in my feels a little bit, I was like, what did I screw up? Like, you know, I didn't even get slated. I'm currently, I'm an incumbent. Like, what did I do wrong? And so, and um, and I petitioned, I got on the ballot, but it's really hard when you petition, get on the ballot. Some people are successful. I was not, so I lost. And, you know, a lot of people lose and they get all mad. And, you know, I certainly, let's not be clear, it wasn't all roses over here in my head. But, you know, I thought about I gained so much from APA and I still had a lot more capacity to give. So I went back to my division and I actually, most people are chair of a division, then go to the board. I went the opposite. I went from the board back to chair my division and which gave me the opportunity to work on the APA policy guide. And so when fast forward four years, when the board, uh, uh, the board nominating committee contacted me again, like, um, you should submit, you know, I had to get over myself and pull my, get out of my feelings. Cause I'm still, you know, keep in mind, don't give me too much credit. I'm still salty about four years before and they didn't pick me. <laughs> and so I did. And then I won and I actually ran against a good friend who I think is an amazing person, Miguel Vasquez, who's there in, um, in California, which, you know, it sucks when you're running against somebody you have great respect for, for sure. Um, and I still work with him as well. Um, but you know, so I won and then Fast forward two years, midway in my term, the nominating committee reached out about um, submitting for APA president. I mean, it. I literally submitted that. If it was due on like May 15th at midnight, I submitted it at 11.59. Like I was, I was on the fence. I'm like, can my ego take this, you know? And, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure. And so, you know, I was like, you know, we're just going to put it in. And when they called to say I won, Mike Welch, I wish he had recorded it because it was really inappropriate, but I definitely was looking for Ashton Kutcher because I was like, this is not real. And I, you know, I was, I spent a whole year as president-elect and I was still somewhat in disbelief. So I think it really sunk in, not even January 1st when it kicked in, but certainly as we started, you know, suddenly I'm meeting with the APA CEO every month, every week, actually, not every month. And I was like, oh, this is very real. So, and, you know, I am not a, extroverted person, nor am I introvert. I'm a true ambivert, but I lean toward introvert. So it's a real stretch for me as a person being like president. I'm definitely more of a chief of staff behind the scenes person. Um, so it's been, it's a great opportunity for me to grow professionally um, and stretch some of my comfort zones. And I tell people that I'm unapologetic about, you know, like, hey, this is a stretch for me because I'd much rather be behind the scenes, just doing the work I want to do. I don't have to be the front person. So that's a long way to answer that. But <laughs> no, that was that was really great. And it it just highlights how important it is to kind of, you know, I think I'm really happy that it, you know, everything went the way it did, because now here you are and you're coming to at a time when there are so many challenges facing the field of planning. And I think that your perspective and also just 
your vision and your personality are so needed at this time. And so I'm extremely grateful that, you know, this is the space that you're operating in. And I don't know, it just makes me really happy. And it also, it's inspiring because like you said, it can be really challenging when initially you don't get something at first or, you know, you don't, you're not where you kind of envisioned yourself to be. And so you feel like, okay, maybe I should take a step back. And I'm really glad that you chose not to do that because it's really inspiring for people like me. Um, and I don't know why it's making me a little emotional, but <laughs> anyways, so... oh my God. <laughs> Sam knows I'm like a big baby about stuff like this. So anyways, <laughs> um, as the new national president of the American Planning Association, which woo woo, um, what are your top priorities for the organization and for the field of urban planning as a whole? Because, you know, really new people are always bringing in new ideas, new concepts, and you're coming from such a an amazing background. And so Sam and I are kind of curious as, you know, in your lived experience and the experience that you've had in the roles that you've you've participated in, kind of how have you set your priorities for the organization moving forward and just for the space of urban planning? Yeah, you know, I think one of the good things is we have a really awesome strategic plan and we go through a process every couple of years. And these are kind of the key priorities. We already talked a lot about housing, so I can kind of skip that one, but we're also doing a lot of work around climate impacts. And, you know, you guys live in a state that probably thinks about it more than some others, but aware, you know, we've got to be aware that the greatest impacts from national hazards should not place the greatest burden on socioeconomic challenged communities. So that is a huge priority, thinking about the desperate impact on all of these climate and environmental policies. And then, you know, really, Planners have to be the ones to help communities become safer and more resilient to the future impacts. We are literally living with the consequences of our ancestors' decisions in terms of climate. And, you know, that's real. As someone who has asthma, I think about that a lot when I travel. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't breathe. And I have to look up what the you know air quality is for the day. And, oh, make sure you bring your inhaler this day. So those are things I think about from that perspective. Having gone to school in New Orleans, certainly. I'm pre-Katrina, but I mean, what happened at Katrina is not something we didn't know would happen. And I also went to school in Mississippi, which had a total, during Katrina, uh, the coast of Mississippi had the exact opposite. It wasn't just flooding. They were completely wiped out. Or, you know, what's happening in Jackson now with the water quality. And, you know, we've got water issues throughout this country. I think, lastly, a huge priority is equity. We talked about the equity and zoning guide, and I think that's an important piece of the work that we're going to do. But it's not equity just in our professional work, which is hugely important, and we're behind the bar on that, so we have to get started soon and quickly, but also as an organization. And so we need our profession to better reflect the demographics in our communities. Um, as an organization, we have, you know, we look at demographics quite a bit professionally, but we just really started collecting demographics for APA, so we don't have like measures on that, so we'll probably start looking at how do we um, look at it from a membership perspective to reflect our communities, but also Working on long term to create a welcoming, respectful environment. We've had some some challenges in organization over the last year or so around that. And um, the AICP Code of Ethics recently changed to add a policy around sexual harassment. And so certainly looking at as an organization, what do we have to do to really make this a welcoming place for everybody? And that can be a sexual harassment, it could be discrimination, it could be access and accessibility. So just really looking at that. And so that's a huge priority now that. The board is really taking a huge focal point on and has a task force looking um, looking at what do we do and making it a wide scope 
because it's really easy to harp on one specific issue as it impacts. And certainly we had a huge one over the last year, but really looking at how do we make this a welcoming place? And then that extends once we think about as an organization, how do we make it a welcoming place for others? And a lot of the things you'll hear me talk about, particularly in the conference, we were raising money for the diversity scholarship. So certainly we, you guys are students, you know, it's not cheap to go to graduate school by any stretch of the imagination. And when we start looking at diversity and, you know, just systemic issues, money becomes a huge issue on whether or not you pursue a graduate degree. And frankly, in our field, you still have the jobs that pay decent money. And I questionably in some of these entering planning jobs, if that's decent money, but certainly a lot of these jobs are still requiring a graduate degree. So we have to really expand access to educational opportunities if we want to increase diversity. So those are really the, the kind of core priorities. Um, that really spill off into the things that you see. I see a lot of people, the urban planners on TikTok talking about also. <laughs> yeah, we just chatted with a, a planner that's on Planner Talk and that was a really great conversation. But I really- well, let me be on one. I want to be on a TikTok. <laughs> Advocate for me. <laughs> oh my gosh. I would love if you would get on TikTok. You can do it. Um, That'd be amazing. Yeah, uh, AP, I was going to say, if yeah. APA doesn't already have a TikTok, <laughs> APA should have a TikTok. Because and I that is, it. And <laughs> the TikTok liaisons yeah. of APA. The APA social media team knows I am desiring <laughs> to do a TikTok. So they're very clear. I love that. I love that. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad that climate and resilience are priorities that APA is really focusing on. I think, yeah, in California, like that's something that is talked about a lot because throughout the state, we have deserts, we have coastline, we have like every climate and mm -hmm. there's just like so many kind of localized impacts. But I think a big like part of how I, you know, coming from an environmental background, I definitely have a lot of like climate doom. Like I, I just get really kind of stuck in my dread and I think having organizations that are really pushing this narrative of hope and resilience and like how can we make a difference is like really important to keep people just optimistic and I don't know hopeful that we have the means and we have the technology and we have the motivation to keep to yeah. keep fighting so I really appreciate that. Yes, I'm excited to really kind of see the needle moving within APA. We've got several divisions that focus on different aspects of that and are doing a really good job of putting content out there. And I think that's super important that seeing APA expand from just our monthly magazine to really having a bigger social media presence, having our own podcast um, and really engaging communities in a different way is super exciting to see. Um, we have a really great communications team within APA and seeing them push and stretch to stay on top of those ways. That's what I want to see our communities do, right? Like yeah. five years ago, would you have seen APA active? Well, we've probably been active on Twitter, but certainly not as, I mean, we're very active on all social media streams and it takes a lot of work and yeah. we have dedicated staff to do that. And it's really exciting to see a lot of the talent that we're bringing to really you know, provide tools to planners. Cause one thing I didn't mention, and you'll see a lot, you probably saw a lot of, it takes a planner hashtag. So the voice of planning is a huge APA priority that we are working on and it's launching in a few select cities. 
um, over the next couple of months. So you'll see a lot around it takes a planner and it's really to encourage us to tell the stories. Yeah. Planners don't always do a good job telling the stories. And what I've learned for sure in advocacy work, politicians need to hear the stories to support the work that we're doing. So. That's so true. And that's actually something that Sam and I were really big on when we started the podcast was accessibility in a way that isn't so jargon heavy and that isn't confusing or hard to understand, but as is accessible to every single person. And I think, you know, yes, social media in a lot of ways can be kind of problematic, but I also think it's a really important tool to get the message out there that you're trying to convey that is stated in a way that isn't so, you know, I mean, for lack of a better term, like boring, because Sam and I had always talked about that, just like we were looking for spaces that had information that wasn't so dense and hard to understand. And, you know, even from us coming from this planning background, it's still like very complicated talking about zoning, talking about CEQA here in the state of California, which is our environmental processes. Like these concepts are are extremely hard to understand. And so I'm really grateful that APA is kind of venturing into the social media space because the work that you guys are doing is so important and it's not just for planners, it's for the community at large and for them to understand that there are organizations that are really trying to make a meaningful impact in their lives. And I think that's just so important. So I'm really glad that that's like a priority for you guys as well. Um, and that that's understood too at the front, because there are a lot of younger people who are entering this field. Um, and that's something Sam and I have noticed, like a lot of young folks, even if they're not in planning degrees, they're very interested in the concepts that we're talking about because it impacts them and it, you know, it's a part of their daily lives and their lived experiences. So that's, it's amazing. And um, yeah, so we can jump into the next question. Yeah, I think as, as people who have kind of, I don't know, I have definitely used APA as a means to meet people and yeah. expand my skill set. I was involved in the APA LA um, chapter last year, which was a really awesome experience. But we're just curious from your perspective, um, what are some of the avenues that young planners or early career planners, because that might not always be the same thing, um, can use to be involved with APA? Well, the first thing I always tell, particularly when I'm speaking to students, I'm like, man, it's free. It was not free when I was in graduate school. So that's your certainly yeah. your first kind of <laughs> your first opportunity. But then, I mean, you get to be a member of several divisions. So join the divisions that are subject or population um, focused of your interest. I think that's an awesome way because they're always needing to put out content. And if you're younger in your career or in school, you probably have content that you it helps, you know, so I, let me back up. I do very little volunteer work that doesn't also serve me in a purpose of professional development. And so I think as a younger professional and or a student, utilizing your membership at APA could help that. So we just talked a lot about social media stuff, but, you know, building your brand, you can utilize a lot of APA tools to help do that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And I'm unapologetic when I, and I share people, I share that to people so they under, there's nothing wrong with doing good, but also building your brand. So I think that's one way. Um, so divisions, chapters, um, most chapters now have the emerging planners group or some type of segment. So that's a really good way to get involved. And then, you know, it's just really stepping up in whatever way you're comfortable with. It's writing a newspaper article, 
you know, particularly younger members who are into social media, every chapter or division probably needs help there. So that's low hanging fruit. Um, if you're con- if a conference state or national conference is coming to your city, get engaged on the conference planning committee, um, widening the scope of what maybe that conference will deliver. Like Philadelphia had a pretty decent, we had a really great um, agenda there, but they had a really good committee. And so as we're leading into starting to plan for Minneapolis, you know, my per- my plug to people is get engaged. And um, there's both the local committee, but the national conference committee. And then even with that, divisions and chapters have events at the national conference. So those are low hanging fruit. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't say that it's election season at APA. So nominations are open. So take a look at the interact and look at all of the chapters and divisions that are participating in the consolidated elections and look at some opportunities. I mean, there's almost always a student rep for both chapters and divisions, but there are other offices that, um, that need support. And, you know, I think our organization is only as strong as our members who volunteer. And I see a lot of great, talented, younger and emerging planners that do a lot of great work outside of the organization. And I don't begrudge that at all, but I love to see some of that energy coming inside of the organization. So a lot of my personal focus as president of APA is to really encourage students and young emerging planners on not only just their professional development, but development of our organization. Because as a profession and as an organization, I mean, we're the largest planning organization in the world. It is amazing having just come out of Philadelphia to see all the international presence at our conference. So people really do look to us. And so I think it's important to have a wide breadth of membership reflecting the content that we're putting out there. So that's some of the easy ways. And I think because you guys have a wide breadth of listeners, I will say for people who are more seasoned in the profession, I think it is really important for us to look at people like the two of you who are doing that kind of content and raising that as well. Um, you know, like I, I ran for the board only because Missy Barker, who did not know me, I did not meet her till years later, saw my bio was like, oh, I should tap her. She didn't know me. So I think it's really important that we look at talented individuals and encourage them to get engaged as well. Because like me, it might not have been a thought of whomever the next person is. So I think it's really, really important. So that's why I try to find podcasts like yours and lift those up as well, because I think it's great content. Um, And I think it's important that we embrace things that are really moving the needle on the voice of planning. Like, you know, it really does take a planner. I think it's important that we stress that as so many people are interested in the built environment, planners bring a unique perspective and expertise that should be appreciated. And it starts with us telling the story and making people realize that it really does take a planner and we are the footprint to make move the needle in the built environment with a lot of our partners in other fields. But a lot of the work we do often gets underestimated or under credited, I'll say, but a lot of that's our fault. So it's a roundabout way of answering that. <laughs> no, that's amazing. And I think you've highlighted some really important elements of kind of not only the opportunities at APA, but how people can become more involved in the space of planning. So I think that's truly amazing. And Sam and I just really want to thank you for being able to chat with us. And we always at the end of our episode offer the opportunity that if you have any organizations that you would like to share with our listeners that you think they could benefit from, you know, we would love for you to plug them in. And I know you mentioned some during the episode, but if you do want to just use this time to kind of highlight them once again, or add some, some new ones, we would, we would welcome that and we appreciate it. 
Yeah. So, you know, I am a huge, huge advocate of looking at the community organizations um, in your local area. Certainly there's always a community development corporation or some nonprofit that's doing something in the built environment that needs your skill set. So I would say that would be the first thing I would recommend. I'm a kidney donor. So make, you know, I'm a huge believer in volunteering with all the National Kidney Foundation, but I have a huge bias there. Um, but I really think it's just looking at the skills that you bring in the community organizations that are near and dear to you, or that you don't, or even some elected officials like, you know, volunteer for the planning commission, you know, try to find ways to take your talents, particularly those people who do not work for a city or as a planner specifically. I mean, that's how I stay relevant in planning. I was on the Seattle Planning Commission. I was on the King County Boundary Annexation Board. And I will say up until that moment, I obviously knew how cities were annexed, but it never put any thoughts. So sitting on that board was a huge learning experience for me um, and getting engaged in some of the community committees that local aldermen or city council members have um, are really good ways to give back to the community within the skill sets that we have. And particularly if you don't work in the community you live in, it's a way to stay con connected. Um, and I, I it's, it's certainly harder if you're working and living in the city you work for. So I do want to add, I get that piece. So. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I don't totally agree that, you know, staying, staying in tune, particularly, I think, as planners, but also for everyone, just staying in tune with the communities that you're living and working in. Yeah. Is so, so, so important. Um, so just echoing that. But thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and for connecting with us. We were so, so, so excited to hear from you. And we're so excited to see everything that APA is going to accomplish and we'll definitely, you know, we will be staying involved yeah. um, as we enter the working, you know, world and graduating <laughs> from grad school and starting this new journey. So thank you yes. so much for just taking the time. And thank you guys for creating this space. I really have been a fan of a lot of the work that you guys are doing. Like, you guys had a podcast on, um, it was a developer and he kind of made affordable housing type stuff. He broke it down for people, which you don't see very often. So, you know, just want to encourage you guys to keep going. I know as you start working, I don't know what this will look like. Um, I know it'll be a lot more challenging, but it's really great content and certainly appreciate what you guys are doing on really making sure people understand planning is not boring. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Sam and I are continuing the podcast. Um, even as we move into, you know, Sam's moving to the Bay Area, I'm staying in LA. So it's going to be uh, an interesting transition. But of course, you know, we do most of this stuff via Zoom. So thank God for technology. We'll, we're excited because I think that also in your like in work experience, it's going to be very different from, you know, academia. So I'm interested to see where we're able to take some of the topics, you know, that we're, we're going to discuss further. So yeah, thank you again, though, for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys. And good luck and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not. <laughs> <laughs>